Hello and welcome back to Equity, a TechCrunch podcast all about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I'm joined today by my dear friend and colleague, Natasha Moscarinas. Natasha, how are you and how is life? Life is okay. I'm a little under the weather. So if I, I sound super cool on today's episode, because I've kind of lost my voice. That's why. I know you all were wondering. Yes, everyone's like, her voice pitch has changed by several (laughs) degrees. We're also down Marianne today because she is under the weather as well. There is- What's happening? I'm calling it the plague wave between flu, COVID, RSV. Like it really feels like not just inside of TC, but like everywhere. People are pretty sick right now. Totally. It's also like the holidays are about to come. So of course your immune system is finally starting to like lower down. You're enjoying, you're relaxing. I blame vacation and taking a break as a reason for why I'm sick right now. And that's my hot take. So are you trying to make me feel better for not taking time off after disrupt? Because, uh, well, (laughs) maybe it was good for my physical health. I'm not going to comment on my mental health, but- Your uh, time off is coming (laughs) though. I- Oh my God. We have to fan a little bit about your your photo shoot with Liza. Oh. It was so beautiful. I haven't even messaged you about it directly yet, but it just reminds I, me. I love those photos. I have so many more that I can show you. Oh I have my God. Dozens. I, I literally picked ones that were non-descriptive of where we live. So I can show you okay, the ones that include so our house. Smart. <laughs> that's so smart. I, I think about that, but not in that situation. They all looked amazing. Yeah. Liza looks beautiful. You look beautiful. Yeah, if you uh, if if you think about relationships, one interesting vector to think about your partner on is their level of publicness or, yes. or comfort with it. Like Natasha, you're all all over the internet. Your partner is not, and I think He's you not. and I shared that kind of like dynamic in which you have to be a little more careful. Totally. I like made a TikTok about him yesterday because he was looking for Taylor Swift tickets for me. And I was just like, I like just got the corner of his face in and I'm like, I swear I'm not hiding him. I just don't think he wants to be as public yeah. as we are. Yeah. Safety also is a consideration. So good on you for not thinking about that retroactively with oh, the photo shoot. I mean, I live, I, you know, I talk to her all the time. I know how she feels. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, enough about all that. As you can tell, yes. we are slowly descending into the holiday period. We are looking forward to next week as a data point up top. We are going to have equity on Monday and Wednesday at a minimum. There may be a special episode. There may be a rerun. There may be nothing on Friday. We're going to do our best to keep you occupied. And we all understand the importance of having digital content when family is around (laughs) to hide from. So we'll do our best. No promises, but definitely back Monday and Wednesday of next week. All right, Natasha, today we have a couple of really, really awesome things to talk about. First up is going to be a Maven funding round. Then we're going to talk about what Alibaba is doing in Latin America and China and e-commerce in general. It's going to be a lot of fun. Then we're going to talk about fallout from the, you know, the FTX implosion. There's a lot going on there. We have companies that are impacted, regions. There's a lot to get into. Very excited about that. And then layoffs. Not going to be the funnest section, but there's a lot of important news here from Amazon to Twitter to smaller companies to companies you've forgotten about that are cutting quite a lot of staff. And we're going to talk about the dynamics of that and then close with a couple of notes on the venture climate and then we're out of here. But first, Natasha, Maven. I thought we were done with unicorns. What's going on? (laughs) I last covered Maven in August, 2021 when they became a unicorn. They're a women's health clinic and benefits platform. And they're back in the news this week with a bigger valuation and more money. So yes, super counterintuitive right there. So they raised a $90 million Series E led by General Catalyst, and they grew their valuation from 1 billion to 1.35 billion. I mean, it's good news, of course, for them and for venture, yay. But more importantly, it's good news for consumers because Maven's all about trying to help women's health be treated as humans' 
health and make employers show up for the people on their teams and offer them this kind of wide suite of benefits that goes from having a family to menopause to mental health. So I was very happy to see them grow. So this is essentially a kind of add-on to a traditional insurance plan. Does this replace traditional insurance? I'm not quite sure where it fits in the market. Yeah. Think of it as kind of a add-on to the benefits suite that it's meant to be a more targeted (laughs) approach to all the different health questions someone may have. So a big focus for them right now is really in the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned, people are really curious about how to get access to services that would help them terminate their pregnancy or think about their pregnancy in different ways. Um, I think of it as kind of like a more focused benefits platform that thankfully employers are paying for and not not us. Yeah. And this company is aimed at employers versus individuals, I presume. So it's part of that. I'm not trying to overly clump it onto other things that aren't doing well, but like the boom we saw in recent years of employers offering an increasingly diverse array of services and benefits to employees as a way to entice and retain. Yeah, exactly. But I think that that's like a reason why I covered it is like, I think when employers are cutting budgets, I'm sorry, but employers don't do favors for employees. Like they are trying to either retain or recruit. And so the fact that Maven's not on the cutting block per them that, you know, they grew 5X in lives covered since we last chatted in August of last year was a helpful guidepost to where benefits are being taken back. So maybe like an employer is not as likely to pay for your aspirational education budget, but they're so focused on women's health clinics and benefits, which makes me very happy and very grateful. (laughs) There's a really interesting bit of math we can do here because you just brought up the phrase like lives covered, like how many folks are under kind of Maven's service umbrella. And it's now 15 million. And so if you think about a $1.35 billion valuation and 15 million people, you can do the math there on what this is currently valued at. At the same time, not to be dismissive, going from a $1 billion valuation to 1.35 is plus 35% in just over a year. And frankly, that in the current market, judging where things were last year, is kind of a win. Like flat is the new up, so up is the new up, up. I agree. I don't have enough comprehension, maybe I should, on like what a reasonable valuation bump would have been for 2020 to 2021. This all happened, if this all kind of shifted one year back. But I will say, yeah, just not having a flat round to your point feels like a win to me. And I think Kate Ryder, their CEO, put it really well. When I asked, I was kind of dancing around it a little bit. I was like, so like, where's the money going? And she was like, it's not being saved for a rainy day fund. Like we are investing this money immediately. And I actually think that some companies have told me that like, this is all, you know, we don't need this money right now. We're just kind of keeping it. So the fact that Maven's like, actually, we recently launched this menopause program. And in six weeks, 1.2 million lives were covered across 150 employers. I feel like they just had more to prove than I think unicorns have had to in a while, which I'm yeah. I'm here for. Let's keep making unicorns talk. <laughs> wow. Talking unicorns. That'd be the great name for a really bad tech focused talking heads cover <laughs> band. As a last note here, I, I'm just torn about Maven because on one hand, I'm so glad that more people have access to better healthcare services. I'm glad we're paying more attention to women's health, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, holy crap, our national healthcare hodgepodge is a mess. So it's kind oh of God. like, woo. Oh. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I feel like it's like we can, I think Toyin said this during Disrupt where she was just like, you know, I can sit here and be frustrated, but like, honestly, I need to build within this very complex system or else we're not going to get anywhere. So I think it's like the best of a shitty situation is is how I feel yeah. about digital health at large. Yeah. We shouldn't throw stones at people trying to make things better. At the same time, we can complain that the overall picture is a mess. So speaking of <laughs> speaking of messes, I don't know. This is a terrible pivot to no, the Chinese economy. Wrong. <laughs> Anyways, uh, everyone who listens to Equity for a while knows that I have a particular fascination with the Chinese economy, uh, have had for a long time. It is 
very differently set up than other economies, given the way that local governments raise tax revenue, the focus on construction, centralized control of, of media and how that impacts business and a lot of other things that are just different than uh, how things work, say, in Europe or the United States, kind of the two main places where equity has the most listeners. If you're in Asia, Africa or South America, hi, we love you too. Anyways, there's a news item on TechCrunch this week that Alibaba is eyeing logistics growth in the Latin American market as the Chinese economy slows. And when we think about Alibaba, I think a lot of us think about Jack Ma and we think about kind of the big IPO they had in the U.S. and right. how they were this. I mean, Natasha, they were kind of like the equivalent of a household name in the United States when it came to Chinese tech. Fair enough? Yes. This like e-commerce giant. It is being used as a comparison and headlines and stories to help people explain just how big its infrastructure really is. Absolutely. And also just how big the Chinese economy grew because it was spawning major globe straddling, at least financially, technology companies. And here we have Alibaba looking at Latin America. And so I was very curious about this. Why is this going on? And it turns out that Alibaba, much like any really major tech platform company, has a lot of different efforts. And one of them is called, I'm going to kind of ruin this, and I'm so sorry to everyone out there who can speak proper Mandarin, but Kanyao, maybe? It's a C word and it's a, it, it's a proper noun and it's essentially their logistics arm. So much like Amazon has like Amazon freight and Amazon yeah. warehouses and Amazon lockers. Think about all of that underneath the Alibaba umbrella. Fair enough? Yeah, I'll take that. Cool. And they're expanding to Latin America for kind of what I can see as two reasons. One is the Chinese economy is slowing. We all know this. If you haven't read the news for 9, 12, 18 months, catch up. But also because I think that there's an increased competition inside the Chinese market. Companies like Pen Zhao are really kind of pushing on undercutting certain elements of, I think, Alibaba's business. And so they're reaching out, Natasha. And to me, given how much we've talked about Latin America on this show and on TechCrunch, given that we've seen venture investment decline in the area, this felt counter-narrative to me in a very interesting way. And- Long forward looking by Alibaba, if I can. Tell me more about why it felt counterintuitive. I think, like you said, we've been seeing Alibaba look to diversify where it shows up. And so, yes, when we saw this news, we saw that they are launching this first parcel distribution center in Brazil. But, you know, it has been building these sorting centers in Mexico and Chile. So I'm I'm a little bit like, did Brazil feel like the surprise to you or just the fact that it's expanding distribution centers in general? Neither. I so oh. poorly explained what I was trying to say no, that I managed I to send you off. No, no, not at all. No, you were mid-paragraph and I'm like, I'm going to let her finish this and then apologize because (laughs) you made all very salient and useful points. The counter-narrative point that I was trying to highlight and failed was that as we're seeing venture pullback, we're seeing Alibaba increase its footprint. Okay. And so like you would think that the two would go kind of in tandem because if Alibaba is going to be investing into a growing e-commerce market because they see growth there, you might think investors would see the same thing and they would kind of be on the same wavelength. Instead, we're seeing kind of contrary signals. Okay. That makes sense to me. I think the fact that they're operating during this time in that way, it then colors me like, well, if no one else is paying attention, let's take advantage of our bullishness in the area. And clearly their capacity, one thing that's always amazed me about Alibaba is they can launch something as seemingly simple as a parcel distribution center, but then that entirely helps them, you know, at some point reverse this trade route that long existed. So I feel like it's kind of like if we have the infrastructure and the opportunity, why not take it now? Yeah. And if you read the TechCrunch story on this, as always, links to stuff we talk about are in the show notes that are on TechCrunch.com. It's like a equity post. You can find it every well, three times a week. But there's going to be a movement of goods, not from China to Latin America only, but also from Latin America back to China. And so Alibaba is betting on not only a wider geographic footprint, but also, as Natasha said, a reversal of the traditional trade from China out, in this case, from out into China. So it's very interesting. There's one other piece of news in the Alibaba world that I wanted to, actually, maybe two other if we have a second. Please. <laughs> okay. So so one was, I want to hear how you think about this move 
in the backdrop of Alibaba's growth. Like I saw that they somewhat missed analyst expectations for revenue growth, but also beat earnings forecasts, which to me are a lot of like, you let some people down and you surprise other people. Uh, <laughs> do we know how they're doing sales-wise enough to know that this was like a either a move of desperation at all? Or, you know, are they I, just, I just super I- strong? I, I love the, how you describe letting people <laughs> down versus not. I mean, that is that is just <laughs> business and relationships and media Oof. and everything else. So sadly, I can't find the tab that I had pulled up you're that good, had Alibaba's good. most recent results in it. Cause I, I prepped for this question because I thought we might get to it. If I recall, their aggregate revenue growth was 3% you're year right. over year in the last quarter. Yes. Okay, I do have it. It says that sales for its second fiscal quarter rose 3% to $29.12 billion. Analysts had expected sales of $29.44 billion. I mean, decimal points, but I guess in the billions, that matters. <laughs> So uh, one thing our, our our colleague Ron Miller likes to kind of get exercised about is when a company will like either just beat or barely miss yeah. and Wall Street reacts in a negative or positive manner outsized of kind of the miss or beat. Yeah. And in this case, I think people are paying a little bit more attention to Alibaba's forward-looking results than they're trailing. And that's fine in a growth-oriented business. That's what you do. But I think 3% growth at a tech company the size of Alibaba with its place in the Chinese economy and its global footprint is weak. It's thought, pretty weak. I thought you were going to say something completely opposite. I thought you were going to say it's impressive. I feel like the very, and maybe I'm comparing Alibaba too much to like a late stage startup right now. Cause I'm just like, good on you for doing anything. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you can't say that. We just had Maven, and, which like, like 5X the people that it covers That's in a true. year. And Alibaba growing 3%. 3% is like opening an extra lemonade stand. Come on. I mean, they have, they have a cloud business, logistics, e-com. They're huge. They do so much. Well, you know, speaking of the cloud business, the only other point I had on Alibaba was they announced, I think two months ago, this $1 billion investment in a, quote, global partner ecosystem upgrade all about Alibaba Cloud because it's the world's third largest public cloud provider. I thought it was interesting that, you know, $1 billion, wonder how they came up with it. Whoa, they're they're bigger than Google Cloud Compute, GCP? Yeah. So I I thought it it was AWS, Azure, Google, Alibaba. Now- See, we got to get Ron on the show because yeah. he would he would know that. But you're right. They are an important cloud provider. And to be clear, if you want to do cloud inside of China, you have to have a local partner. Azure partnered with 21 Vianet. So to see Alibaba go the other direction, again, matters and shows that Chinese companies are looking outside their borders, which will change governance, rules, and so forth. Okay, that's enough about all that. Let's talk about <laughs> FTX, but not about Sam Bankman fried I'm not going to bring up the words drugs, polycule, Really, most of the things that are going on, I want to talk instead about the fallout. And Natasha, something that we covered this week on TechCrunch was that Nestcoin, which was an African Web3 startup venture thing, had a bunch of its assets in FTX. And it's not alone, but it did feel representative or indicative of the damage that the FTX implosion will cause, not just to the company itself, not just to its backers, but to other nascent technology companies. Yes. And, you know, Becca last week on Equity, shout out Becca for stepping in, said that she was missing the human interest story here. We knew that a lot of people, big people, influential people were losing money, but like, what about a startup employee? And I think this story really hit it home for me. So Nestcoin had to lay off some employees because they had put a lot of their day-to-day operational budget, a significant portion of the stablecoin that they had raised in FTX. And to me, it really like, it really cemented this idea that the fact that 
someone is losing lots of money. Things are being marked down to zero. Like, I think those are all really big statements that we don't really know how they play out in real time. And so I don't want to say I'm happy to have this example, but I do want to say, I think it like is a warning and a more specific one, a more impactful one than Sequoia marking its investment down to zero. To me, when I hear that, I'm like, sucks for Sequoia and LPs, but this is like, okay, no, like people were actually impacted here. Real people, not just investors. See, the scale of impact on a per entity basis can be much greater than the the dollar amount might make you kind of think. So let's say you're a venture capital company, you put 200 million into FTX. If you could put that much money into FTX, a single deal or a single company, you have billions of dollars in assets under management. So if you lose that, it's not good. It's a painful write down. It's gonna be a bad letter to your LPs, but you don't lose your house. You know, you still have a gig. If you're an employee of Nestcoin where they had their assets on FTX and just got laid off, you could be in a much bigger jam, even if the dollar amount's smaller. So it's really the, the human capital that we care about here versus the financial capital. It's it's exactly, it's what sits wrong with me. Like, you know, the next kind of impact that we saw happen this week was that SoftBank has written down its nearly $100 million investment in FTX. And we can say more about that. But I think like the thing that frustrates me is like, it does feel just like a little tone deaf to be like, we marked it down to zero, but here's how much money we actually have and how many gains we actually have LPs. Don't be worried. I get why they're doing it. Don't get me wrong. And I think it's a signal. Don't get me wrong. I don't know. It, it feels like an awkward flex in an environment where people are losing jobs. And as someone put on Twitter, I forget who, like lives could be lost from this. Like this is not casual. I mean, I haven't talked about FTX on the pod yet. So I've just been holding on to this yeah. for a while. So Natasha, how on a scale of one to mad, how livid are you? Because my, my read is that you have a small chip on your shoulder about <laughs> the uh, the loose use of capital here and regulatory oversight and internal controls. So I think you wrote a story this morning that really, I think, put it well that I'll add to, which was maybe FTX was the poster child of 2021's hype, if I'm not butchering that headline. Close enough. Yeah. Parker Thompson didn't like it, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, great. Well, it's like, that is what I agree with. And I think that's why it it hurts in a way because it's like, we've been talking about due diligence. We've been talking about discipline and we've been talking about how FOMO impacted investment decisions. But now we have this really visceral example and I'm kind of like, I don't know, my hands are a little up saying, I think this will impact crypto. I don't know if this is going to make investors do more due diligence on companies. And so I feel a little hopeless. And as Amanda Silberling put it so well during dinner, during Disrupt, my toxic trait is taking VC seriously. I take VC seriously because I care about it. I think it's a really cool asset class. I just wish that this poster child was going to have an actual impact on the how the asset class acts. I think I'm a little bit more optimistic that the FTX saga will shake up some behaviors, given how big it got in terms of valuation, given how much money it raised and given how fast it fell. I don't know if those changes extend outside of crypto per se. I think that's kind of the question you're really driving out there, but we'll see. Yeah. Just to explain what I was trying to do in that piece. And given that PT didn't like it and uh, a few other folks also. What is PT saying? I mean, no, to be, this is not a, not a Parker. I, I like him and I appreciate that he reads my stuff enough to have an opinion. But the thing that I was trying to say is it seems like FTX had a exacerbated or or more extreme version of a lot of the issues that we saw last year. And I was trying to compare its lack of a traditional board, founder control, opaque finances, rapid fire fundraising, you know, et cetera. These things that became more prevalent, I would say in 2021, when capital was fighting amongst itself to get money into startups and therefore eschewing, or is is it eschew? Yeah. I wish I could tell you. I only write that word if that. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) 
English. We love it. Yeah. How does it work? <laughs> Anyways, investors gave up or passed on a lot of stuff that they would have traditionally demanded in terms of oversight, due diligence, and so forth. And so to me, FTX kind of got to where it was on the back of a crypto boom and then also a non-governance boom combined for an epic explosion, but it was indicative of stuff we saw last year. And if that's a stretch, well, then I apologize, but I was out of ideas on Thursday morning. <laughs> no, so I mean, I, I co-sign your perspective clearly, but I think this is where we bring in former SoftBank COO, Marcelo Clore. He tweeted, quote, I have been reflecting personally on the whole FTX fiasco and it taught me one more time that we should never invest because of FOMO and we should always 100% understand what we are investing in. I totally failed here on both. There's yeah. two ways to read this. One is kind of like the faux, like, humbleness of a mistake that is now clear to everyone. But I will take the more optimistic approach of like, I actually think it was really helpful for Marcelo to tweet this because it makes something explicit that people are kind of whispering about. He actually cited FOMO as a reason for why he invested yeah. in FTX. And I, to me, it's just helpful because it shows that someone at, like, you know, we know SoftBank's made mistakes in the past, but I still think it's helpful to hear how they were thinking and what went wrong here. And from an investor perspective, yeah, because, I mean, not to be overly bold here, but I think it's fair to say that uh, most investors are people. And <laughs> as such, I'm, I'm kidding, they're all, we're all human. And so we all have the same fallacies. We all have the same, the same foibles. We have the same mistakes. We have the same weaknesses. And one thing that humans like to do is follow the, the pack, especially if it's what the cool kids are doing. And investors just being, you know, I, I like to joke that a, a kids are not short adults, but adults are just tall kids. And so, like, I feel like we don't actually get rid of our mental model mistakes that we that we had when we were younger. And so FOMO and not understanding and getting busy with a lot of capital, well, that's going to keep happening. Yeah. But maybe the current generation of founders and, and investors can pick up some stuff from this and avoid some more of it. Can I like throw us a little to the side for a second? Yeah, please. One thing I've talked to some of our TC coworkers about is the blame that's kind of being put on the press about not catching FTX. And, you know, shouldn't we have learned from Elizabeth Holmes, Adam Newman, also two different situations, all three are different situations, but I, yeah. we haven't talked about it. So like wh what's going on? Like, what do you think about like the fingers that are being pointed at the press right now? I, I want to be careful in how I talk about <laughs> okay, this. I don't want to accidentally avoid pointing a finger at any single publication or person yeah. who, who writes this sort of, I mean, okay, fine. Let's be clear. People were pointing out Forbes articles, sorry, Forbes covers, right. Of various people who didn't end up becoming the business leaders that they thought they would become right? Yeah. There is a history of people getting on magazine covers for perhaps lesser reasons or reasons that didn't hold up over time. And I'm not going to go through the historical analogs here, but Time Magazine's made some choices <laughs> in the past. And I think this is a weakness of the genre of coverage that yields glossy covers. And there's a reason why I don't do profiles. One, I don't care. <laughs> Personally, that's just, that's just me, but I know people love to read them. So like, that's, you know, not dissing the world, just trying to explain my own two cents. And Natasha, I think that when you do profiles of people on the rise, you tend to try to want people to read it. So you end up framing it in such a way that attracts attention. Hence how, you know, Sam Bakeman Fried became the next Warren Buffett until he became not very quickly. You know, like, it's like weird because we, we've had Elizabeth Holmes on stage. We've, I think like a lot of media in a way that I, we both understand more than a lot of people wants to interview important figures, get them on stage and ask them questions. I think it's just like a weird brand of journalism when people are like, hey, like, why didn't the media do more? Why didn't you press about something? And I'm being really bad at subtweeting right now, but I just think a little bit about how like, yes, of course, things should be looked at in a super specific way. But I also think like now the impact of FTX collapsing, 
people who are throwing their hands up and saying the media should have done better. I think the media has a bigger job to do now and should also be focused on that. So I don't know. I feel like there's clearly always room for us to grow. I'm not saying we, yeah, no one up here, but. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, to be clear, I do not think the media is perfect. I do not think that all journalists are lovely, much like any broad industry around the world. Right. There's going to be stronger and weaker players and mistakes that are made. I mean, I tweet and retweet press criticism on a regular basis. Yeah. But I, I will say this. I don't know how people can be cross with the media for not figuring things out that Sequoia didn't. Because Sequoia had access, at least in theory, to more than we had. For example, they got to sit down with the team at FTX and ask them a lot of questions in an investing context that was off the record. We don't get to do that. We don't do so that. <laughs> I just want to say, yes, does the media you know, conserve some responsibility for things that happen? Sure. But also, I interviewed Brian Armstrong on stage for Disrupt in London, I think, in 2014. So if you want to talk about you know talking to people who ended up building companies that did matter in crypto, well, we did that and have done that and we'll keep doing that. Yeah. We did have homes on stage. Well, you don't win them all. Right. But if VCs I mean, can miss 90% of the time, we can miss 10% of the time, I think. We can't force people to answer questions. And I don't think the job of a journalist is to indict someone. It's to raise questions and question assumptions and point towards certain things. But we're not going to sit here being like, yeah, I don't know. We're not indicting anyone. Anyways, I wanted to talk that through. I realized we never talked about it. Thank you for- I, I appreciate <laughs> that. I hope we struck the right tone. And if you are currently sitting there thinking that we have attacked you, um, we didn't. Or at least we tried to hide it. <laughs> I was going to so, say. There we go. I just, I'll just, okay. Couple of clarifications. One, I love Forbes. Oh, uh, I, I love, yeah. Yeah. This is not a finger pointy thing. And, and that's what I want the takeaway to be. I think it's weird to do a finger pointy thing. I think no one yes. should be finger pointing. And that's, yes. that's all I want to say. Thank you for letting me say that. But I can, I can point a finger at FTX and say that their meltdown is causing at least a modest form of contagion in and around the crypto world. We are seeing a lot of people take hits. There's, a, a, I think a, clarifying picture of the scale of damage from this particular explosion or implosion. And we're still figuring that out. Jackie's been doing a lot of great reporting. Anita at our crypto event this week, also working on the same questions, trying to figure out what happened. Uh, we just had CZ from Binance on stage on Thursday. So lots to learn. Yeah. And um, we're still working I'm on super it. curious what the mood is at that event. But anyways. <laughs> okay, I have a segue. Watch this. You know how the media could do better, Natasha? Yes. Is if we had more people in the media versus having so many layoffs that we've recently covered in the media space and- Speaking of layoffs, did you know that tech is still laying off people? And Natasha, I hear that an American e-commerce giant is also cutting staff. Oh my God, there we go. I hate that there are so many ways we've had to transition to layoff stories this year. Yes, I'm so sick of it. I'm so sick of it. We'll run through the high level because we know that you guys are maybe sick of it, but we also know that you guys care because these are maybe you or your friends or your people. Amazon has begun layoffs. Early rumors have anticipated around 10,000 employees are being laid off, around 3%. And it's mainly impacting retail human resources and the company's cloud gaming service, Luna. Macroeconomic environment and years of rapid hiring are the reasons we have, Alex. Are you surprised? No, I'm frantically Googling Luna because I'd forgotten that that exists. Luna aside, we're hearing that a lot of efforts from Amazon are simply not as uh, profitable as others, and so they're, they're at risk. I mean, things like the Amazon Alexa hardware. No one, I think, thought that that was going to be profit engine of the company. Apparently Luna as well, things like Fire Tablets. I own a Fire Tablet. I like my Fire. And uh, my father-in-law is an Echo freak. So I have so many of those in my life. Based on how he decorates his house, you think Amazon would be killing it, <laughs> but apparently not, sadly. And it does appear that layoffs are going to come. But Natasha, 3% compared to other layoffs, not bad. Not bad at all. Obviously we saw Meta cut 
13% of its staff, around 11,000 employees. I think Meta, Amazon, I believe you mentioned before our chat that Cisco and Roku also yeah. have had layoffs recently. I mean, I hope this strikes the right tone, but like Cisco, to me, comes off as a company that is stable as heck. People probably joined after they were laid off as a company that they, you know, it's not a risky company to be in. You know what's happening with Cisco. And I feel like Amazon has looked at the same way in a way. It's making these flashy acquisitions. It's launching funds. It's doing all these mm. things that show signs of growth. And so I'm sure this came as a surprise to a lot of people. And it really fits into what we've been talking about, which is a lot of layoffs are going to be rolling out ahead of the holidays. Maybe take a break for a month and then we're starting next year off maybe on a negative note as well. Yeah, I don't think it's going to stop. The difference, though, between Cisco and Amazon is that I think they don't do a lot of the stuff that Amazon was doing. Like, I mean, when's the last time you heard about Cisco Ventures? That's fair. Super fair. Or Cisco's new AI hardware talking robot speaker that will also bring you advertisements and breakfast. You know, like Cisco makes switches. They make stuff that fits in the internet backbone that we use implicitly all the time. Shout out Cisco for making hardware. Woo! Routers, love them. <laughs> but like, you know, it's not a company that I think would be as susceptible to the same kind of macroeconomic ups and downs that an e-commerce company right. like Amazon would be. And so I think that it has reached them, to your point, is a very good one. It shows how much, I'm not going to use the phrase trim the facts. I'm not going to re refer to employees, and which are humans that way, but like, Working on controlling costs. Yeah, no. You know, it's, if it's all the way there. It's really weird because I think it like, for me, it, it like questions my like human thing of like, when I see my friends being impacted by layoffs, I'll be like, just go join a boring tech company, guys. Or just go join the most boring company you can find. Slot in and just keep your job. And I think that this is like, we're at an entirely different chapter of the layoff story that we were in February when Thoracio began its first round of layoffs. And I think that's helpful to hear. I also, we have to include in the section, the latest on Twitter, which has... Obviously, you know, it's had thousands of layoffs, several resignations, including its chief information security officer, its head of trust and safety, its chief privacy officer, its chief compliance officer, its chief consumer officer, its chief of people and diversity. I, yeah. I mean, that is insane, the resignations and layoffs, but Elon Musk apparently sent an email to employees saying they could either resign and receive severance or they can commit to a, quote, hardcore work environment. Alex, you had no thoughts about that. Right? Nothing. Yeah, none. <laughs> yeah, none. So Elon sent an email that may or may not have been following all international labor standards in terms of how to handle layoffs, accommodations, people, and so forth. But the gist was get ready for some insanely long hours or get the f out. And um, I cannot even imagine how lovely it would be to be told by my boss that I can either work a lot more or get paid for three months to sit on my backside. Because oh my God. tempting. You know, I'm tired like everyone else. We've been working a lot. Anyways, in this case, I wrote a little joke piece called that Volunteers Tribute, and I, I tried to explain my views on this. But, you know, if I was working hard at SpaceX, another Musk company, as an enormous dweeb for science fiction and for rockets, and as someone who would volunteer to be shoved into a small can and shot to a nearby solar system so I could bounce around for 12 minutes before I died, I could probably talk me into it. But Twitter is now just his vanity project. And I don't know how easy it is to get people excited about that. The weird part is like on a person to person level, agree with you, very difficult. The hard part is I think this is gonna help with recruitment. I think people are in love with him and will join oh, based on the oh, oh, oh. appeal of a hardcore work ethic. Like this is their time to shine, especially with layoffs. I do wonder what some of the new tech talent will look like and the quality of it. But I mean, yeah, I don't know. I'm a little like, we've seen this before and we've seen that hiring will continue and it's maybe not a yeah. retention strategy, but maybe it's a recruitment strategy. Yeah. You make a good point. Musk 
has, as anyone who's ever criticized Musk on Twitter knows, a loud and vocal and engaged fan base. And so he may be able to attract quite a number of um, Muskelites, if you will, <laughs> to his roster. But in my experience, the Musk fans tend to come in kind of one or two flavors. And so there's going to be a lot of similarity there. And I don't know. It's strange to see. And I think the tone is wrong. I thought the layoffs that we saw yes. in media were at least coordinated with a little bit more empathy, but there's still staff cuts all the same. And, you know, like, I mean, just seeing morning brew cut staff, seeing protocol shut down lately. It's just, it's a crappy time to be a, a business reporter, which is what you and I are broadly. Yeah. That, everything's just kind of sad. Uh, yeah. I, I want to end with those layoffs. So yeah, like you said, Morning Brew just announced that it's laying off around 14% of staff. Protocol is shutting down and it's laying off all of its staff as a result. It's a hard time as reporters. It obviously hits close to home. A lot of these people have covered the same stories we have of these mass layoffs for the past year. And then seeing that they were impacted is a really messed up full circle moment. Yeah. And it's a sad time to lose accountability in the industry. Like, let's talk about FTX. Like, yeah, like you said, if the media wants to do a better job, we need people there. This is a loss for the whole industry. And I finally get what CEOs mean when they say it for their specific vertical. I think like losing amazing tech reporter talent to me is like, oh, it's such bad timing. It is such bad timing for this to happen. You know, there's never a good timing. But right now, it feels like the moment where everything's being stress tested and you know, investigative reporters, people with the smartest takes on things are no longer going to have this massive platform, which sucks, honestly. It's not the same environment where they could have just, you know, Alex jumped on Substack and started their own media company. They could, but I don't know if that would pay the bills right now. Yeah, I've decided that I'm going to pivot from journalism into winning the lottery and being independently wealthy the rest of my life. Perfect. Maybe we should buy Twitter too. Oh, sh That'd be fun. I have a couple of ideas. I have a couple of ideas for Twitter. Um, all right, let's let's hang up our spurs for the day. Yes. But don't forget, everyone, we are back on Monday. We are back on Wednesday, and we may or may not be back towards the end of next week. It is an American holiday called Thanksgiving, not the Canadian version, the real good old fashioned Yankee version, um, in which we eat ourselves into a coma and then complain about Europe. It's a tradition. We love it. We love you and Natasha. I'll talk to you on Slack after this. Yes. All right. Bye. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporters, Natasha Mascarenas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickabet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.